So it's great to have this opportunity to speak to you again. It, it has been four and a half years, which is too long. And I know exactly when it was because I came here for my dad's 90th birthday last time. And so he's now 94 and still doing well. So let's praise God for that. But it's, it's always good to back, come back into familiar surroundings. I grew up in Middle Cove. And I was a member of St. John's over there at East Willoughby, Willoughby Park Church, they call it now. And I think it was originally a plant from St. Stephen's, was it? Back in the 1920s, something like that. So, long connections. So, it's great to visit. I don't know about living here, though. <laughs> I just freak at the traffic every time I come back. The nice thing though, is just to, to see old friends and, and family and everything. It's just, it's just great. You just pick up from where you left off. Yeah. People often ask me uh, how I got involved in Bible translation. Uh, it's a bit like a jigsaw puzzle where, where the pieces just fell into place over about 20 years. Starting with uh, high school, uh, I did... French and German at high school and actually enjoyed it. That might be surprising to some of you, but I actually enjoyed that. Uh, but my first job, my first professional job after university was in Alice Springs at the education department. And that job gave me the opportunity to visit dozens of remote communities. It also showed me at that time how little English was spoken once you got outside the town. I moved from Alice Springs to Canberra in July, of all things, which is the worst possible time to do that. I worked in the National Library for several years, and one of my jobs was as a cataloger for the National Bibliography. And some of you may realise that everything that gets published in Australia ends up at the National Library. Everything. And it ends up in the bibliography, and somebody has to catalogue the stuff, but nobody would touch the Aboriginal language material. And I, was, I became the unofficial Aboriginal languages cataloguer because I'd had two years in Alice Springs, so there you go. But that was an eye-opener for me. The other thing was that during those years I attended a church whose pastor was involved in Indigenous ministries and who would often invite... Uh, Aboriginal pastors to speak to us. The other connection was that a translator working from Alice Springs was also linked with that church and she would visit from time to time and so that sort of kept my awareness going during the Canberra years. That was 1982 to 87. So during those years I had an awareness that God was preparing me for something but I just didn't know what it was. The last piece fell into place in the middle of 1987. I went to a, a probe course at the Wycliffe National Centre in Melbourne. It's a five-day sort of uh, test the waters course, if you like. And some people really struggled with it because they'd never done anything with languages before. I found it absolutely fascinating and, and then the penny dropped. Oh, that's what's going on. So then I handed in my notice and I went to Bible college and the rest as they say. But in order to have clarity about that and, and to come to a point where I actually 
worked out what God was doing, I had to be in a position to hear from him. And that is something that the Lord has been impressing on me again recently, hence our topic today, engaging with God. Because engaging with God has, I have to say, has been a struggle for me over the years, especially once we had kids. And then, of course, as a solo parent uh, with little kids, uh, prayer especially became a struggle. Any time that I would set aside for quiet time with God meant falling asleep, basically. <laughs> and I don't have that excuse anymore, but... Correcting the pattern is another issue. Wave at me if you experience that. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I see some hands. So this, uh, this passage came to my attention again recently and uh, I was just intrigued by it. And, and when we translated it, it's a long time ago now, uh, it was fascinating then too, especially to interact with the translators, but more about that later. So, um, beam up, or swipe up, or turn up, please. Luke chapter 9. You know what this is, don't you? This is a CPP, a compact print package. It's never obsolete. It never needs recharging. It never needs updating. It's available in a range of sizes and colours. And it's totally recyclable. Fascinating. What else will they think of? Okay, I want to begin by reading the first verse of our passage this morning. We've already read it through, but I'm going to read it again in Aliaora. It goes, We can end up in the Jesus law a put irulual, a kniwalat Rapakutungalanum ir a pitch at Nuno, Peter, away in the Nathara, James, Jonathan. Did you pick any of that up? The names? <laughs> That's just a little taste for you, I guess, of what Aboriginal people experience when they go to a church in most outback towns in Australia, provincial towns. Even if they have quite good everyday English. Listening to the Bible or to the proceedings of a, your average church meeting in English is really a struggle for them. Most of it goes over their heads. We have about 20 or so regular Aboriginal people in our congregation at home and, and I, I just know that most of it goes over their heads. We, we, we read usually in two local languages, the, the reading for the day, but you can't expect everybody to preach in three languages, so it doesn't happen. And you can imagine what an issue this is in our courts and hospitals. The, the potential for miscommunication is enormous. And potential for serious consequences is enormous. Did you notice how long it took to read one verse? So there's Aliawara and there's the English. So on my page here, uh, it takes nearly three lines and on my English page it takes an, a line and a half. We find that, that uh, with translation into indigenous languages if we're not using about twice as much paper as the English we're probably being too literal 
and therefore not communicating. And it isn't just because the words in Oliawara or other languages are long, and many of them are, but it's because in indigenous thought and in languages and their languages, the, the, many of the concepts are just not there. For example, they don't have abstract nouns. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness. None of those words exists. They're all, you have to use verbs, so every one of those needs a clause or a sentence. So what makes a lovely little short poster-sized verse that you can put on the wall, for, on a poster, it's lost. But our aim is to translate the meaning, not the words. The meaning has to get across. And if we need to use more words, then we do. That also causes problems in the courts, by the way, when the uh, legal fraternity insists that the interpreter uses the same number of words as English. And the poor interpreter gets into trouble for, for doing their job, basically, for making the meaning clear. Pray about that. Now, as I said, when we were translating this passage, um, I, I found it interesting to observe the response of the translators, the local translators. They were not at all surprised by this passage. Aboriginal Christians often have dreams and visions, especially those who don't read. Why is that? I don't know why that is. But God uses that method to speak to them because they're, they're familiar with that. Dreams are so much a part of their spiritual heritage. And because it's a part of their heritage, because they're accustomed to it, it happens. The expectation is there, so it happens. And I think uh, we, in our sophistication, miss out. Because we don't expect to hear from God in ways like that, we don't. Doesn't mean we can't. But that's our loss, I believe. Now, in the previous verses, Jesus has been teaching the disciples about taking up their cross daily. Now, it appears that eight days have passed since then, but the conversation still seems to be going on. But I wonder what goes through your mind when you read this passage or when you hear it, hear it read. Do you wonder why it's there? Why is it in our Bible? Maybe you're wondering, well, I wonder how I would have responded if I were Peter, James or John. Maybe you're thinking, well, Peter needs to engage his brain before putting his mouth in gear. He's always putting his foot in it. To me, this, this scene, it's like a scene in a play, you know, a private scene where maybe the, the two main protagonists go aside and you see something that happens to them while all the action is going on somewhere else. Uh, this reminds me of, of a play. So Jesus has his inmost circle, the three disciples that were his, his inner circle, Peter, James and John. And he reveals himself to them in a new way, a fresh way. And they're up on a mountain. God did the same thing years before on a mountain with Moses and with Elijah. He had revealed himself to them 
in those places. And on this occasion, Jesus, it's as if Jesus' humanity is just peeled back, just ever so briefly. And it gives the disciples a short glimpse of his stunning divine glory, just a short glimpse. It's as if um, the heavenly dimension is momentarily overlapping with the earthly dimension somehow. I don't know, the earthly reality somehow, for a while at least, corresponds to heavenly reality. I'm reminded of that, that verse in Revelation chapter 1 where, where Jesus says, every eye will see him. Well, John says, every eye will see him. So we, we see here a little partial glimpse seeing Jesus as he really is in glory. In verse 29, Luke says that the appearance of his face changed. His clothes became bright as a flash of lightning. He doesn't use the word transfigured at all. I think this is because he's writing to a Greek audience because in Greek culture that particular word was often used of Greek deities, um, magicians who were able to change themselves into some other form. So rather than uh, distract from the meaning, he, he doesn't... He doesn't use that word. But interestingly, Matthew and Mark do use the word, this word that means transfigure, because Matthew is writing for Jewish readers and Mark for Roman readers. So there's no, there was no barrier there, no problem. And what are Moses and Elijah doing there? I think it's because Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. They appear and they speak with Jesus to indicate the continuity between their work and Jesus' work. And they appear in glory, having come from heaven, as do all the inhabitants of heaven. They appear in glory. The other interesting thing is that neither of those figures died in the usual way. So people expected that they would return sometime. Do you remember that Moses was buried by God himself? That's in Deuteronomy 34. Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind, 2 Kings chapter 2. So I guess it's not surprising that many people in Jesus' day, for example, thought of John the Baptist as Elijah come back. So the three of them are there discussing Jesus' departure. Why are they discussing his departure? You'll see in the footnote, it also means exodus. They're not just referring to Jesus' death, they're referring to the approaching suffering and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. It is the completion, it, the fulfillment that he speaks of, is that completion of the task that he had come to do. Unfortunately, the, the three disciples are very sleepy at this moment and they miss a lot of this conversation that has been going on between Moses and Elijah and Jesus. So they have missed the significance. And they've missed the significance earlier of what Jesus had said to them about his imminent death and resurrection, which I guess explains Peter's inappropriate response, or partly. 
I mentioned earlier that Aboriginal people often have dreams from God. Anybody can have dreams from God. Other people report quite intense spiritual experiences. Perhaps they see a glimpse of heaven or they have a, a near-death experience and they revive or they see visions or they hear audibly the voice of God. They see angels at work. And these things certainly do happen. But I wonder if they're more likely to happen to people who spend serious time engaging with God in prayer. It's just a, a question. People who are prepared to spend time and just wait in God's presence. Because I think in our fast-paced world today, we've forgotten how to do that, or maybe many of us have never ever learned how to do it. And as I said earlier, this is an area of challenge for me and God has been drawing this to my attention very much in recent times. Just as an aside, I find it a challenge to explain to Aboriginal people what it is to engage with God. I think this is because traditional religion is very much focused on what you do, not what you think. So you participate in traditional ceremony, you sing the songs, you say the words, you do the dances, you do the actions, and that's sufficient. The language of traditional ceremony is so archaic that nobody knows what the words mean. And, but as long as you get them right, you have to get them right. You don't have to know what they mean, which influences also their attitude to the Bible. They're so accustomed to reading this in English and not understanding what it meant and they think nothing of it because they did, they, in the past they didn't have to know why or what. So reading their own language is very confronting for them because suddenly it makes sense. It's a challenge. The other challenge is getting people to read scripture in public because they must get it right. If they're not a confident reader and they stumble over the words, they feel dreadful. They'd rather not do it at all. So that's a matter for prayer, please. The, that is knowing how to encourage people without embarrassing them to just have to get up and have a go anyway. Just do it. And if you make a mistake, just keep going. So... When you have an, a, a, a view of faith that it means you, your faith is shown by what you do and what you don't do. That is, that is the sum total of your faith. So you attend church, you don't drink, you don't do this, you do this, you don't do that. But explaining the concept of a relationship with Jesus is really a challenge. And many of them get it just because God touches them in such a way, they just get it. But teaching it is a real challenge. So back to our revelation in Luke 9. Notice that the story begins with a time of prayer, that Jesus has drawn aside and he is spending time with God in prayer. And we know too from the Gospels that he did that often. He would sometimes spend entire nights in prayer or he would get up very early in the morning and go away by himself and pray. So if he, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, needed to do that, then... It's obvious the question is how much more do we need to do the same? 
So what actually happens when we spend long periods in prayer? What happens when we consciously seek to engage with God and expect to hear back from him? I'm reminded of the verse in Romans 12, verse 2, where we're exhorted to, be, to not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I think that's what happens when, when we're engaging with God like this, the renewal of our minds. Because we know that as Christians we will have absolutely zero impact on our world if we are not engaged with God. And if we are indistinguishable from everything around us, everyone around us. Great to see the Alpha course being offered by this church. What a great opportunity to demonstrate who Jesus is to the world around us. So it's very easy to become focused on ourselves and, to, uh, and what we're doing. And missionaries are just as prone to this as anybody else. As a, as a group, we can be very task-oriented and just go on with our, with, along with our blinkers on and not see stuff, just, just to get the job done. And uh, we're just as prone to this, so that's a matter for prayer, I guess. But what a privilege to be used by God to impact our world. I find it interesting, uh, words are my business, I find it interesting that Paul uses the same Greek word in that Romans verse about being transformed as Matthew and Mark use for the word that we translate as transfigured. Metamorphote, you can hear our word metamorphosis. So it means that in Jesus, the glory and the wonder of God were suddenly seen and experienced by Peter, James and John. And similarly in us, the glory and the wonder of God can be experienced or observed by those around us. And that need not be so far-fetched as it first sounds um, if we are willing to cooperate with the Spirit who is already dwelling within us. If we can allow him to bring about that transformation that he speaks of in Romans 12 to become that sort of renewed person that's gradually reflecting the one who's doing the renewing in us. And we never stop learning this, of course. And in this story, this is a learning opportunity for Peter, James and John. He, Jesus is preparing them for their future ministry. He's giving them a fresh revelation of himself. And he knew that later on they would understand. He knew that later on they would be able to allow God to use them in incredible ways to spread the knowledge and the wonder of the glory of God. Which, of course, is exactly what he wants to do in and through us. He is always ready to give us a fresh revelation of himself in whatever manner we are able to receive it. And I guess the challenge is for us to be open to that, to Give him enough time to speak to us in that way. It would not necessarily be dramatic. We may not be called to Africa. We may not be told to do something, something radical. But it may just be that God wants to assure us that he loves us and that he will never leave us.
And that's what many people around us want to hear or need to hear. So that's what I'd like to leave with you this morning is a reminder that God is ready and willing to engage with us and waiting for us to engage with him if we, were, if we are willing to do that. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you do take the time to speak to us if we will give you the time. So we pray for the grace to do that, even in our lives that are so busy. We pray that you'd teach us how, so that we too may see a glimpse of your glory and that we too may allow you to transform us into the likeness of Christ and so make an impact on the world around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.